My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to tell you a story. It's the story uh, that is found in First and Second, or First Samuel four through six. We have been in a series on the book of First and Second Samuel. Um, I say book; it was originally one book, and then the scroll got divided into two. And we've been focusing on Samuel, but now we turn to the story of the Ark of the Covenant. I, uh, I wonder if you've ever seen a flow rider. Do you know what a flow rider is? I got to experience a flow rider. I've talked about this before because it was so amazing. I got to experience a flow rider when I took my daughter before the pandemic to a water park. And there's this ramp. I want you to picture a ramp, and then I want you to picture water shooting up the ramp. And then I want you to picture people on these little foam boards trying to get onto that water and stand up, right? And it's a simulated surf machine where you're supposed to boogie board or surf on this ramp. But what I really found out that the whole thing is about is about watching people wipe out one after another. I mean, I just sat there and, you know, all, especially all the dads get up there and they're like, I'm going to do this. I can do this. This thing is so powerful. It would throw people against the wall behind it. I mean, just like pin them and the water's just coming, right? Gushing. And, uh, and, and you're, as you're watching it, the question that comes to your mind is, who's going to be able to stand up? Who's going to be able to stand up and remain standing in the face of this powerful wave machine? At the end of 1 Samuel 4-6, through 6, we have this question. And the question is, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the Lord, the Holy One? Who is able to stand before the powerful presence of God? Because 1 Samuel 4 through 6 are all about the powerful presence of God amongst his people. So let's pray as we consider it. Lord, teach us to live rightly before you. And show us how to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, do you know what happens when you play a country song backwards? Has anyone tried to do this? Have you ever tried to play a country song backwards? If you try to play a country song backwards, what happens is you get your dog back, you get your house back, you get your girl back, you get your dog back, you get your kids back. Apparently, you aren't into dad jokes. Dad told me that one. Well, 1 Samuel 4 is a country song because there is a lot of loss in 1 Samuel 4. First, Israel loses two battles. Then they lose the priestly family, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And then finally, worst of all, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. It was a box, four feet long by two and a half feet wide by two and a half feet tall. It had a lid made of pure gold called the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat, there were two cherubim, angelic-like figures that faced one another. Now, for us, it's just a fancy piece of furniture. But for an Israelite, it was the most important thing in their whole religious system. It was the most important thing that they had. 
Why? Because Israel believed that the Ark of the Covenant conveyed God's sacramental presence. Now, I use my words carefully there. The Ark was a sacrament. That means it not only represented the presence of God, sacraments not only represent the presence of God, they not only show the presence of God or rehearse or repeat or signal the presence of God or picture the presence of God, they convey the presence of God. And that's why in chapter 4, verse 4, we read that God was enthroned above the cherubim. You see, while God exists everywhere, and he is present everywhere and ever present, the reality is, is that God manifests his special presence at the ark. And so you can understand how important the ark was to them, and you can understand how devastated they must have been when they lost it in battle to the Philistines. I mean, how could this happen? Well, we have to back up to see how that happens. In chapter one of the, or in chapter four, verse one, at the beginning of this chapter, we learn that Israel is in a conflict with the Philistines. We're not sure how they get into this conflict, but they're in this conflict. And the Philistines, they were a seafaring people, they were a technological people, and they were fierce in battle. And verse two tells us that they crushed the Israelites. The Israelites lose what our text says is 4,000 men. Side note, that word thousand in the Old Testament, we're not actually sure what it means. It's often used for as a term for a military unit. So they could use, you know, we see all these large numbers in the Old Testament. Maybe it's thousands, maybe it's units. Either way, they lost a substantial amount of men in battle. 4,000 or four units. And so they asked the question, verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's a very human question, isn't it? When you suffer loss, when you suffer defeat, why did I lose this job? Why did that relationship go sour? Why have my finances been depleted? What is going on? You know, in the midst of loss, in the midst of failure, in the midst of defeat, it's a great time to take stock. Israel asked a good question, but notice they rush to a solution. They say in verse 3, I know what we need. Let's go get the ark so that God will save us. If we have the ark and we take the ark into battle with us, then God will rescue us from the hands of the Philistines. You remember that movie, Cool Hand Luke? Cool Hand Luke, it had Paul Newman in it. Paul Newman, he's, if you want to know what Paul Newman looked like, just picture me, but older. Paul Newman is sitting there in the midst of the scene in Cool Hand Luke. Some of you remember, and he's got his banjo out. And the rain's falling, and he's in his barracks, and he says, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I have my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. I think we should do it a little faster. I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I have my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Well, the Israelites had their plastic Jesus sitting on the proverbial dashboard of their chariots. And they thought, if we take this into battle, we will win. It still happens today, you know. 
like plastic Jesus and putting Bibles on the dashboard of the car and, you know, thinking that somehow if we have a, dash, a Bible on the dashboard of the car, we, you know, say, well, police officer, excuse me, officer, I'm just, I'm rushing to church. I'm late to church. We think that maybe, you know, God's going to get us off or maybe our ichthus on the back of our bumper will protect us from rear ending. I don't know. It still happens today, but for most of us, that's not really our temptation. For most of us, we think these silly Israelites, I mean, these ancients that are so superstitious, we're beyond that now. But let's hold on a second. Because the Israelites, the problem is not what we tend to think the problem was. The problem was not that they associated the powerful presence of God with the ark. That is not the problem. We might consider that superstitious. But when God identifies himself with physical material in this world, like bread and wine and water... We better do well to actually think that God's powerful presence is there. And throughout, throughout 1 Samuel 4 through 6, it is assumed that God's powerful presence is manifest and associated with this ark. That is not their problem. Their problem is that they use the ark to manipulate God. Is that they use the thing that God has said is associated with his powerful presence in order to oblige God to act on their behalf. They're trying to use the ark as a formula and turn a relationship with the living God into a formula to get their own ends fulfilled. That's the problem. And we are not beyond that, unfortunately. It happens all the time. I mean, it could it could look like, you know, saying, well, we're going to we're going to get junior baptized so that so that God will bless us and give us a blessed life with him. It it could look like, you know, I'm going to go to church consistently over the next two months because I've got a I've got a I've got a big promotion coming up and I want to make sure that, you know, I'm in God's favor. It it can look like. it could look like us saying, you know, I, well, that test didn't go well because I just, I just wasn't prayed up enough. I didn't pray enough. I had a bad day because I didn't read my Bible. But, you know, if you turn those phrases inside out, what we are often saying is this. If I read my Bible, if I pray, if I go to church in these ways, then God has to bless me the way I want him to. He has to give me and fulfill my desires. And we try to oblige God. Maybe it looks like saying, you know, uh, we're, uh, if I'm a musician, if I, if I do Christian music, then, then I have to be successful. Or if I, if I put out religious type books in my, in my office, or posters, inspirational posters with Bible verses around my business that I'm creating, it can't fail, right? God has to bless it. But anytime we say that, we turn a relationship with the living God into a formula. And God is not our lucky charm. God is not a genie 
a cosmic genie that if we figure out how to do the right formula, go to church this amount of times, do this this many times, do this this many times, then it will go well with us. And here's how you know that you're doing that with God, that you're playing with God like he's your cosmic butler or your cosmic genie. Here's how you know. What happens when you experience failure and loss? Because I don't think a lot of us know what to do with failure and loss. And when it happens, we think the formula must not have worked. Either we're not doing it right, and so we start thinking about all the ways in which we're not doing the formula right. Oh, I missed the formula there. Missed that trick. Got to go do that. Or we say, whoa, 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 whoa. I've kept my end of the deal, God. I've done the formula. I've been faithful. So why aren't you faithful in giving me the spouse of my dreams or the family of my desires? See, if this text tells us anything, it is that God is not beholden to us. He is free, absolutely free, even free to disappoint us. And he will disappoint us. If that's what it takes to help us to realize that we cannot control him or manipulate him. That God is not our boy. We are God's servants, his subjects, and his children. Well, if the Israelites try to manipulate God, the Philistines, they try to manage God. And they do so in two ways. We can pick up the story in chapter 5. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into the temple of Dagon, their god. Now you have to understand what's going on here. It was very customary in the ancient world that if you're uh, if you won a victory and you got another um, if you got another people's god, you would take that into your god's temple. You see, why would they do this? The, Israel, the Philistines knew that the Israelites' God was powerful. They had heard about him. Their theology might have been a little off if you heard the reading. But they knew that he was powerful and they knew what he did to the Egyptians. But they think, hey, we beat them. So our God, Dagon, he must be more powerful than Israel's God. And so here's what we'll do. In order to contain Israel, this powerful God, we'll set him before our more powerful God in his temple. And he can rule over Israel's God. He can rule over Yahweh. And so they set the ark up there so that it can serve Dagon. And this is the first way that they try to manage God. By giving God a place in our temple next to other gods. And by the way, it's not just the Philistines who are doing this. This isn't just a Philistine problem. Because in chapter 7, verse 3, what we don't know as we're reading through this narrative, but what's only revealed until chapter 7, verse 3, is that Israel has been worshiping other gods as well, alongside Yahweh. And that's why Samuel says in chapter three, verse uh, 7, verse 3, Put away foreign gods and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, if they had reflected just a second longer, maybe a minute, 
on why did God allow us to be defeated by the Philistines, what they would realize is that he allowed us to be defeated by the Philistines because we are worshiping other gods alongside him. Well, there's a word here for us, and it's not an easy one. You know, this whole time we're reading this story and we're thinking, the real problem, Israel's real problem, I'm sure they thought this, Israel's real problem is the Philistines. It's out there. That's our greatest enemy. All the while, Israel's greatest enemy was the enemy within. You know, over and over and over again, the story of the church is the story of one where we look out there it's Hollywood, it's the media, it's the socialist, it's all these other people. That's the problem with the world. Listen, the Philistines are a problem. It's not that those things might not be problems. They're problems. But the greatest enemy of the church has always been and will always be not the enemy without, but the enemy within. It's the enemy that's in my own heart and the idols of my own heart and life. It's the way that we try to manage God by saying, God, we'll, we'll let you be here in our lives as long as you serve these other gods, our other priorities, our higher priorities, like my career, my ministry, even, my family. God, as long as you play a supporting role to my career, to my family, to my leisure. But don't call me to singleness. Don't call me to poverty. Don't call me to mediocrity. Don't call me to be ordinary. Don't call me to celibacy. No, then, uh-uh, uh-uh. No way, God. Can't do that. But what happens when we try? What happens when we try to set God up in our temple and serve alongside our other gods, even support our other gods. What happens? Well, what happens is verse three. See, the next morning, somebody walks into the temple and you know what they find? Dagon face down before the ark, prostrate, serving Yahweh. And they think, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. Well, I mean, there are earthquakes and who knows what happened. The wind might have blown really hard. So they set Dagon back up and then they come back in the next morning. Verse four. Do you know what happens? Dagon's not only down on the ground before Yahweh. Dagon has been decapitated and he doesn't have any arms. The head, the source of wisdom is gone. The arms, the source of strength, gone. And what we find is that Yahweh is the true source of all wisdom and the true source of all strength. So don't trust in princes and don't trust in horses and definitely don't trust in Dagon because all he is right now is a torso. You know what happens when we try to worship God alongside our other gods? God will topple our idols. And when he does... It will weigh heavy on us. It will weigh heavy on us. There was this character from a show that 
uh, was popular when I was growing up. There's a clown. His name was Homie. Homie the Clown. And Homie would, it was a skit show, and Homie would come into a room full of kids, and he, he would ask the kids, you know, kids, what do you want Homie to do? And they would say things like, Homie, can we smash a cream pie in your face? Or, Homie, can we, uh, we slip on a banana peel? Or, Homie, can we put you in a dunk tank so that you'll dunk? And, you know, you know what Homie's response was to all this? Homie, don't play that. You know what I think Yahweh's response is when we try to worship other gods alongside him? When we try to get him to serve our other gods and support, play a supporting role of second fiddle to them? Yahweh, don't play that. He will topple our idols. And when he does, it lays heavy on us. It weighs us down. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Now, what happens next? If, if Dagon was funny, the story of Dagon, what happens next is hilarious. Because what we have is a game of hot potato. The people of Ashdod say, get this ark out of here. And so they send it to Gath. You know, hey, we got a gift for you, Gath. They send the, uh, the ark to Gath. And then the people of Gath are afflicted. And they're like, what did the people of Ashdod give us? And they're like, we have to get rid of this ark. And then they send it to Ekron. I mean, it's like this game of hot potato. Who can hold the ark the longest? And it goes from one place to the next. And there we see the second way that they try to manage God. See, once God won't exist quietly besides our idols, often our next move is to send him away to a faraway region of our lives. But maybe we say, God, it's okay if you can be a part of my life, but you're only going to get two hours on Sunday. But you can't touch this and you can't touch that. Or maybe we say, God, that's okay if you wanted to be part of my childhood, but you're not going to be part of my adulthood. That's okay if you want to be part of, uh, it's okay if you're part of me raising my children, but once they're off, that job is done. What happens often is that we try to manage God by resigning him to a place in our life or by avoiding him all together. And we do it by trying to avoid prayer. We try to avoid God by avoiding his word. We avoid God by avoiding worship. We avoid God by avoiding the accountability of his people. Or maybe we suppress. We suppress those nagging questions that keep coming up. Like, what do I do with my guilt? Or, is there any meaning in life? And where does it come from? Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you don't consider yourself a, a Christian. You know those questions. Do not suppress them. Well, if we can try to relate to God's powerful presence in our life by either manipulating his powerful presence for our benefit or by managing his powerful presence, we find 
that in this narrative, there's one more way that we can react to God's powerful presence. And it comes in chapter 6. The ark has been with the Philistines for seven months, and they have had enough. They are totally defeated and decimated. And so in verse 2, they get a powwow of all their religious leaders, and they're like, what should we do? And they say, we need to send this thing back to Israel. And they're like, who's going to do it? You going to do it? No, I'm not carrying the ark. You going to do it? I'm not carrying the ark. So then they devise a plan. Here's what we'll do. We'll put the ark on the cart. But just in case this is all coincidence, what we'll do is we'll get two calves or two cows that have just given birth. Now, nature would have those calves or those cows stay with their calves. But those, those cows, they did not stay with their calves. They, they headed straight back to Israel. They took a beeline to Israel. And when they get there, verse 10 said that there is great rejoicing amongst the Israelites. But that rejoicing quickly turns to mourning. Why? Because verse 19 of chapter 6 tells us that God struck down 70 men of Bethsheba an Israelite town, a priestly town. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because in verse 19, we find that some of the men looked upon the ark. We're not sure what that means, but we know that they looked upon the ark. They, they treated it irreverently, lightly. Uh, there's also a textual tradition, uh, certain versions of the Bible, ancient versions of the Bible, that, that say that while many of the men rejoiced, there was a group of men, a group of people that did not rejoice at the sight of the ark. Now, if you take these th two things together, they both really say the same thing, and that's this. Whether it's that, whether it's that, they failed to acknowledge the significance of the ark and rejoice in its return, or whether it's that they failed to treat the ark with significant reverence when they approached the ark. Either way, what's happening is they're viewing the ark insignificantly, lightly, indifferently. They're indifferent, casual about the presence of God in their midst. What about us? What about you and me? You know, God has, God has united himself and his presence and promised that it's going to be in certain places, his manifest presence. We call them sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some of you consider yourself Christians and you've been trusting in Jesus for a long time, but you have yet to be baptized. And you're treating that lightly. That you're treating baptism as if it's a, an, an optional addition, a, a possible way that you could show your love to God. But you don't have to. Or maybe it's communion. And we're approaching communion lightly. Either we think that, that communion is this kind of good luck charm that'll get us through the week or... Maybe it's that we just don't think much of it at all. And we don't actually ask the question, wait, does God 
ordained specific ways in which this meal is to be taken because it is holy. Because he's actually promised his powerful presence to be among it. So much so that if we take it in an unworthy manner, a wrong manner, a way that's not befitting to the meal itself, you know, people could actually get sick and die. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Do we actually see this for what it is? Do we treat corporate worship lightly? Like something that we will do if, you know, we don't have anything better to do or we're bored that day. Or is this something where we say, this is the powerful presence of God that is our life. And I want to do everything I can to not only be there, but to prepare for it. See, if you casually play with fire, fire is powerful and it's good and it's strong. But if you casually play around with fire, you can get burned. The Israelites, they got burned. Verse 20 says that the men of Bethshemesh said, in light of all this, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand? You know, the text actually answers the question. I think we're given an answer a couple places. First is back at the end of chapter four. You see, because once once the ark gets captured, we learn that one of the one of the Eli, the priest, his sons, uh, Phineas, he had a pregnant wife who's now a widow. She was in such distress that she goes into labor. She gives birth to a child and she names the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And she names the child Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of the Lord has been captured. And what we find there is that Israel's glory was bound up in the glory of the ark. Israel's glory was in glory, giving glory to God. In treating his presence reverently and rightly. In giving God his due. And the Philistines, they learn this because you know what? When everything is finally okay, the resolution of their story, do you know where it is? It's when they send the ark back. And when they send the ark back in chapter 6, verse 5, they say, and send it back in this way, give glory to the God of Israel. See, they learn that the only way to stand in this God's presence is to acknowledge him for who he is and what he has done. That he is the only true God, the only wise God, that he is God of all. And the only way to stand before him is to give him the glory that is due his name. But we undermine the glory of God any and every time we try to manipulate God. Because he's, he is the sovereign one, the free one. We undermine the glory of God any and every time we try to manage God by comparing him or containing him. Because he is incomparable and he is uncontainable. We, 
We undermine the glory of God any and every time we are indifferent to God and we trivialize his presence because he is unignorable and he's the very source of our meaning and our life. So how can we give this God the glory that is due his name? Well, just consider who this God is. Consider what we have seen thus far. In chapter four, Israel loses a battle. The ark is captured, but something else happens as well. God's word comes to fruition. Hophni and Phinehas die. Judgment comes, but in that judgment there is grace because God is getting rid of the wicked priesthood and reestablishing leadership in Israel. In the midst of loss, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of defeat, God is victorious. And then... Think about what happens when he is in Philistine territory amongst them. God does what Israel could not do. He defeats their enemies. I mean, when he is done with them, the Philistines have been totally demoralized. They go back with their tails between their legs. See, God does what Israel could not do. And how does he do it? He defeats Israel's enemies. He does it alone, by himself. You know, God can defeat our enemies and does often too, alone and by himself. We, you know, we, can, we can chill out on our own sense of self-importance. God can work with us. God can work against us. God can work without us. I know you want to change the world. Chill out. God can change the world without you. It's good. Have plans. Go. But listen. Like, God can minister and save your family without you. God's got your children. God, God, God has the injustices of this world. And he can do it with us, against us, or without us. And that's good news. God defeats Israel's enemies and he does it alone. And you know how else he does it? I mean, think of the headlines the day that the ark went to the Philistine territory. Dagon wins. Israel's God is a wimp. He's captured, he's in weakness, he's in defeat. He's in shame. And it's in that place that he conquers Israel's enemies. Is this sounding familiar to anyone? Let's take it one step further. When Phineas's wife said, names her son Ichabod and says the glory has departed, the word there for the, for the uh, ark being taken away and departing is the same word that's used over and over again in the Old Testament for exile. The ark was exiled. Do you see who this God is? This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very image and presence of God. Jesus Christ, who on his own went to the cross to defeat our enemies in weakness and in shame. Jesus Christ, who was uh, cast outside of the city, in exile, who endured covenant curse on our behalf. 
Jesus Christ, who rose three days later, conquering sin and death and Satan. And he did it without you and me. For you and me. And that's our glory. This is the glory of God's people. The glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So let's glorify this God together. How can we not? As we come to experience his powerful presence at this table together.